Well, you see up on the screen that um, this, is, this is the day that brings the Olympics to a close. Um, one of my favorite things in life has always been the Olympic Games, just always has. Uh, once again, I have thoroughly enjoyed the incredible displays of skill and athleticism. Uh, more than that, I love the fact that the world can still come together for at least one reason, and I wish that kind of global union happened far more often. I love the stories that surround these games, um, from Blade Runner to a 19-year-old national hero from Grenada. Uh, I've just been drawn into the lives of these athletes, so many of them as they've represented their countries on this massive stage. And so I want to talk about a word that describes those who compete in the games. Um, they are all contenders, contenders. Olympic athletes are identified as contenders, contenders for gold, for silver, for bronze, contenders for world records, contenders for national and international acclaim. They take on this identity, some of them at a very early age. Uh, I remember hearing about one of the, the swimmers from China um, who was in his kindergarten class and some representatives from the, the Olympic, their National Olympic Committee came in, uh, looked around and went, you're going to be an Olympic swimmer because he was taller than all the other kids in his class. And that's where it began from him. So it starts so early for some of them. And they contend for the prizes that are offered through this Olympic competition that we've been watching these last two weeks. And we, we resume our role as spectators of the contenders. This morning I want to challenge our perspective of ourselves. Do we see ourselves as contenders? Are you a contender for anything? Or are you simply a spectator of the contenders in every aspect of life? Because I think that the perspective we have on the Olympics carries over into so many dimensions of our lives. We've been programmed in our culture to lift up our heroes as they contend and to admire them, to support them, to respect them. But somewhere in our early adult years, we resign ourselves to the fact that we will never be one of them and we settle into our role as spectator, not contender in life. In his letter to the church, Jude expressed what we just heard in the video. Uh, he was excited to write about the subject of salvation. Uh, so easy and so fun to write about, very exciting stuff. But Jude was compelled by God to write and urge the church to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people to contend, to strive in opposition or against difficulties, to struggle to surmount, to engage in a campaign to achieve something, to argue that something is true. He calls the church to be contenders, not spectators. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. The section of Acts that we're going to cover today is Acts chapter 18, verse 23 right through chapter 21, verse 16. And Paul sets out here on a third missionary journey, and we're going to see a contender in action here. Nobody could miss the fact that Paul is a contender for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That'll be obvious, but what I want us to consider this morning goes beyond just observing a contender in action. We know what Paul went through. The vast majority of us are very familiar with Paul's life and his ministry, He's one of those heroes that we set up on a pedestal to watch as spectators. Once again, we're going to be challenged this morning by the reality that the contender identity 
was not just for heroes like Paul. It is for all of us, for every single one of us as Christ followers. And more than that, we're gonna see this morning two gifts that God offers to us to sustain us in our role as contenders for the gospel. On your bulletin insert, once again, is a map. Uh, It's on the screen as well for you. Have a look at where Paul's going this time. His third journey is the red line on that map. We're starting again in Antioch and Syria, and, and back Paul goes through Galatia and Phrygia, the pink and yellow regions on your map. He visits all the believers that had come to Christ on his previous trips to strengthen them, to see how they're doing. And yes, this meant he had to cross the Taurus Mountains again. Uh, One more stroll across the Rockies. But he was driven to return to these young churches and to help them grow, to encourage them. Then we're introduced in verse 24 to a guy named Apollos. And you may recall his name from some of Paul's writings. Apollos was a Bible scholar. And the Bible was just the Old Testament at that time, and Apollos knew it forwards and back, inside and out. He could prove to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. He was an eloquent and powerful speaker, very persuasive, well-trained, passionate guy. So he's teaching in the synagogue in Ephesus. Now, Apollos is the kind of guy who intimidates us significantly. We look at characters like him, the contenders, and we're glad that God uses them, but we're aware of the fact that we are not like them. Um, I am not like Apollos. I am not good at refuting religious experts. I'm so encouraged that there are people like Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel in God's family. There are people that, that can simply embarrass those who think that they can prove that the Bible is not true. I've listened to Josh McDowell debate some brilliant leaders at different universities and other settings, and inevitably he wins the debate. Um, and I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. But there's something incredibly encouraging in the first part of our passage today that I want to draw your attention to. Um, In the audience who listened to this great scholar speak was a tent maker and his wife. They did not fall into the same category as Apollos. He was a Bible scholar. They made camping gear. But look at what happened. Look at Acts chapter 18, verse 26. Luke writes, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. That's Apollos. When Priscilla and Aquila, our tent makers, heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. The scholar gets schooled by a tent maker and his wife. Apollos knew a lot, but he hadn't experienced Christ and the Holy Spirit like they had. And so they shared the message of grace with Apollos, and he graciously received what they had to say. And now his incredible intellect joins forces with the power of the Holy Spirit. And off he went to Corinth with the blessing of the believers in Ephesus. Apollos was quite a force, but without the message that Priscilla and Aquila had received and in turn offered him, Apollos would never have had the impact that he did. Uh, remember this story when you're feeling inadequate like we do sometimes. God has a part for all of us to play in his story. So Paul came to Ephesus again and he began teaching there. He introduced some new believers to the inner dwelling of the Holy Spirit and he was teaching in the synagogue until the opposition arose to the point where the Jews were becoming belligerent. So Paul took the believers to a new location called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus. Now Tyrannus may have been a lecturer himself, he may just have been the owner of this hall. But it was a safe location for them to continue meeting and it said that Paul taught 
it's said in, in some other historical documents that Paul taught from about 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. when the residents of the city were taking a break from the midday heat. And so rather than just rest, they would come and listen to Paul teach. And God confirmed Paul's ministry among them by allowing miracles to be performed, even through just touching Paul's handkerchief or apron. And then there's this crazy integrity check that happens in chapter 19, verses 13 to 16. Let's read the story. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Uh, Demon possession was a lot more common then than it is in our setting today here in America. Uh, There were exorcists who ran businesses built on this reality. They were not well-intentioned Christians, and there were even Jewish exorcists. And these fell into the same category as the magician that we saw earlier in Acts. This was their business, as shady as it was. These seven claimed to be sons of Siva, a high priest. But there was never a Jewish high priest by this name. This was a fictional stage name that they had come up with. And these deceivers had seen something work in the realm of the demons that they wanted to steal and use in their own show. They tried to use the name of Jesus to do their thing. And it was not a smart move. Uh, The demon gave the man's body extraordinary strength. And the seven were soon dealt with in a very humiliating way. Well, the world was learning that the name and power of Jesus Christ was not to be taken lightly. The name of Jesus was to be lifted up. And it was. And as a result, the gospel penetrated deeper and deeper, and soon even the magicians were bringing all their books and and paraphernalia and burning it as they turned to Christ. There were many that this affected. It says that 50,000 days' worth of wages was the approximate worth of what was surrendered by these new believers. This was a decisive time for Ephesus. The word of God ruled there. The name of Jesus was held high. Then Paul spelled out his plans. He'd go to Macedonia and Achaia and then across the sea to Jerusalem. So for now, he sent Timothy and Erastus ahead to Macedonia and he stayed in Ephesus a little longer. Go to verse 23 of chapter 19. We're gonna read to verse 41. It says, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, the new believers. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, a goddess, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped through the, throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. 
The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, and though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess, if then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. <clears throat> if there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in the legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case... We would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Well, with a wildfire-like spread of the word of God comes persecution, a negative response fueled by the evil in men. Demetrius was a businessman. He sold idols that he had made by others, those shrines that are referred to here, they were purchased by worshipers of the goddess Artemis and then taken to the temple to give as offerings. Many of these shrines have been found by archaeologists, but it's interesting, none of the silver ones. They find a lot of terracotta ones, but none of the silver ones. And it would have been more impressive to offer a silver one, but then, if you did, you could be guaranteed that someone, likely the temple priest, was going to eventually melt your offering down and keep the silver. So Demetrius' income was in jeopardy. And um, Remember the way the slave owner reacted last week when his slave was delivered from her demon? Um, he wasn't happy for the girl. He was mad about the money. Was, was Demetrius rejoicing about the gospel reaching the Ephesians? No, mad about the money. Remember who wrote the words, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Uh, it was Paul, and he had seen this up close. Paul's obedience to God's call on his life impacted the economy of an entire city. You see that? One man, not a, a great man, just one man filled with the Holy Spirit. Lives are being changed. The character of this city was being changed. Uh, some non-existent gods were going to be very upset. So would those who identified with them. But Paul continued to contend for the gospel. So the city got very worked up about this. Demetrius appealed to their sense of religious duty. They simply could not let this happen. A crowd formed and grabbed Paul's traveling companions. Um, their building anger needed a target. Aristarchus was from Macedonia. Gaius was from Derby and Galatia. They had joined Paul as he passed through their cities. And you'll see Aristarchus later in the Acts story. And off they went into the theater, which was a public meeting place that held about 25,000 people. Let me step aside right now and introduce the two things that I want us to focus on this morning that God provides his contenders with. Now, as Paul contends for the gospel, God provides two very powerful things to help him face the opposition. And the first thing that Paul was given is courage. 
courage. And boy, can we see that courage in this story. Uh, Two of Paul's dear friends and traveling companions have been seized by a mob. And what was Paul's response? Oh, let me go speak to the mob. The guy whose name is attached to this whole uprising wants to talk to the mob. Um, So let me make this a little bit more real. Um, Just pretend that you're at a zoo and you're standing in front of the lion's habitat and you accidentally drop your wallet into the lion's den. And your buddy standing next to you who happens to be wearing a jacket made of flank steak says, oh, I'll get it for you. Um, That's not far off from what was happening with Paul here. The mob would have eaten him alive. And Paul's companions hold him back. And it's not just Paul's Christian friends that try to stop him from going in. Even some government officials that Paul had developed friendships with sent word to Paul that he should not go into the theater. And here we see the second focal point for our message, which you'll see even more clearly in a few minutes here. It's love. It's love. God gave Paul extraordinary courage. God also gave Paul a love that was expressed through those who cared about him. Uh, More on that love in a bit. So it's absolute madness in the theater. Um, There were contradictory things that were being shouted, and most of the mob didn't even know why they were there. Uh, Sadly, we see that in our own society as well. This is the mob mentality. The Jews try to settle things down, likely so that they wouldn't be associated with the Christians uh, who were being targeted, but their attempt failed, and the two-hour chant began. The city clerk, who was equivalent to what would be a mayor for us, finally talks some sense into the crowd and dismisses them. And Paul decides it's time to go. So he gathered the disciples together and after encouraging them, he said goodbye. He traveled to Greece and he spent three months there. He was going to sail back to Syria where he had started from, but apparently the Jews were plotting something if he went that way. And so he decided to double back to Macedonia. Uh, His traveling team was growing, so he sent some of them ahead to Troas to wait for Paul and others who had unfinished business or something. And so they joined the rest of the team in Troas five days later, and now we come to a story that that always makes the Acts highlight real. Chapter 20, beginning at verse 7. It goes through verse 12. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. And the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Now Paul wanted to use every available minute that he had with the church in Troas. The voyage up to Troas on a boat which Paul had taken before uh, usually took two days to accomplish. This time it had taken five days. Why? Well it's, it's most commonly believed that there was a strong headwind and this boat had a hard time picking up any speed going into that headwind. So Paul had lost some time and would stay up teaching all night to get some of that time back. Okay, so why does Luke say that there were many lamps in the room? Doesn't that just seem like a silly thing to add in there? 
Well, I think he's actually taking pity on the poor guy who fell out the window. Uh, In a small crowded room, oil lamps produce a lot of smoke and fumes. It becomes oppressive. The air gets heavy. So Eutychus had found a place to get some fresh air. And here's an important factor. Eutychus was just a kid. According to the way it's written here, according to the language used, he would fall somewhere between 7 and 14 years old. That's it. He was up late and he was tired. And so he slowly drifted off to sleep on the windowsill and he fell and he died. And remember that Luke, the author of Acts, was a doctor. And so if Luke says he died, he died. Well, there goes the mood of the entire meeting, right? There's a dead kid now. We should probably call it a night. But Paul comes up with another plan. How about we bring him back to life and get back to the teaching? <laughs> and so he races downstairs, he grabs the boy, he pulls him close, and believe it or not, he declares the boy to be alive, and he was. The meeting continues, and everybody is really paying attention now. <laughs> and Paul closed the meeting and left when morning came. And Paul then sailed and walked down the coast. And you'll see on your map a number of little peninsulas and islands. Uh, Follow the red line from Troas down past Ephesus to Miletus. That's where Paul is now. Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and so he passed Ephesus this time rather than stopping there. Uh, Let's pick up the story at verse 17. Acts 20, verse 17. We're going to read through verse 38. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in order in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. 
in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul calls the elders of the church in Ephesus to come to where he is and join him. Um, He reminisces a bit about what they had experienced together. He spoke honestly about his own presence and how he handled himself while he was there. And then Paul drops the bomb, explains to them that he's headed for Jerusalem. Paul was a contender. He knew it would be hard. But listen again to verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Listen, brothers and sisters. God has given every one of us a task. This is the perspective that we're to have. Finish the task. Contend for the gospel of Jesus Christ in whatever way God has called you and equipped you to contend. Paul said that he considered his life worth nothing, not to God, but to himself. God thought Paul's life was worth everything to the kingdom. And Paul agreed with God and he handed his life over to God to be used by him for the sake of the kingdom. It's what every one of us is being asked to do. Every one of us. Lay it down and let God use it. Uh, Many of us try so hard to see the value in our own lives so that we'll feel better about ourselves and about life. God asks us to give up our lives. To follow Paul in realizing that we can never give more value to our own lives than God can. Let it go. We want desperately to know that our lives are worth something, but we won't see what they're worth until we understand that our lives are worth nothing outside of the value that God has given them. His will, his plan, that's it. I lost track of my life a long time ago. I was contending for nothing before then. Now I have accepted the task that God has given me. And I couldn't be more fulfilled. Paul said that he would not see them again. So he said a few words to those elders about leadership. And his message to the church leaders boils down to this. Watch yourselves and shepherd God's sheep. Now, many of you are leaders here in the church. Listen well to Paul's words here. Be on guard for yourselves. That's what he said first. Not here's your job, not serve well. He said watch yourselves. Your relationship with God comes first. Your purity, your integrity, your connection to and filling with the Holy Spirit is the first thing task will only be effectively completed if you have first committed to God's plan and his perspective. 
I'm not just talking about the elders here. This is for all leaders, ministry leaders, small group leaders, teachers, mothers, fathers, mentors. Heed Paul's words here. He mentions five priorities. Watch yourself. Take care of God's sheep. Protect God's sheep. Study and pray. He commended them to God and to the word of his grace. And don't let your self-interest get in the way. And he reminded them that giving is better than receiving. We'll come back to these someday soon. There is real depth to what Paul told these people. Then we see the love that God provided for Paul to sustain him. They wept. They embraced Paul. They kissed him. This man meant so much to them. And their demonstration of love for him helps sustain Paul as a contender for the gospel. That's a gift from God. And it's a gift that we simply have to offer each other as each one of us contends. Then in chapter 21, Paul sails off again. He's headed back to Syria now and lands at Tyre. Paul and his companions stay there for a week. And we can see here the believers urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And it says that they did this through the Spirit. So did Paul disobey then by going? No. Paul was very clearly led by the Spirit himself. And what I think happened here is that the believers in Tyre were given by the Holy Spirit a sense of what Paul was going to face in Jerusalem. And based on what they saw, they didn't want him to go. And Paul's conviction was very strong. Jesus Christ had given him his mission and he was going to be obedient to it. I want you to see at this point just how clearly Paul is relating to the sufferings of Jesus Christ He's got good people around him that don't want him to suffer, just like Jesus did. But he's being called to finish the task, just like Jesus was. Off they go to Caesarea where they visit Philip. Remember him from early on in our story? Now let's read the conclusion of this chapter of our story. Acts chapter 21, verses 10 through 16. After we had been there a number of days... A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. And here are the two gifts that we as contenders for the gospel are given by God are so clearly demonstrated. The love for Paul was so evident. And Luke includes himself this time in those who pleaded with Paul not to go And this prophetic demonstration that they witnessed must have been so hard for Paul's friends. 
But then here comes that courage that God gave Paul. Like Jesus, Paul was seeing what lay ahead. He knew he would have to suffer. So let his words sink in and see if you can repeat this in your own head and heart. I want you to just close your eyes right now and make a statement on your own. Everything else fades away right now. I want you to try to say this to God. Just pause and close your eyes. Say these words to God in your head and in your heart. I am ready not only to suffer but also to die for Jesus Christ. Stay focused here on God for a minute. Can you say it? You're face to face with him. And this is your statement to him. I am ready not only to suffer, but also to die for Jesus Christ. I am a contender. This is my identity. I have been given the love of others and the courage that comes through the Holy Spirit to sustain me. My life is worth nothing to me. I only want to compete the task, fight the good fight, finish the race. God, your will be done. I want you to stay in this attitude of prayer as the ushers and the worship team come and we pray together now. Father, we know that you are here. We know that your Holy Spirit dwells in all of us who have given our lives to you. This morning we are asking for your help. We're begging for your help. Help us to commit to what is most important in life. Help us to commit to your truth, to say amen to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to live as contenders, not spectators. Help us to see what you've provided us with. You have promised that when we walk into realm, the realm of persecution that you will give us the courage that we need. We stand on that promise. We can see from the passage today that you will surround us with people that love us to sustain us and support us, to encourage us and hold us up. We stand on that promise. God, turn us from spectators into contenders. to contend for the faith that has been entrusted to us from the beginning. To stand strong and declare that we are children of the King. To stand strong and declare the grace of Jesus Christ that is available even for the worst of sinners. To realize that just like in Paul's day, there are many, many, many people who are just waiting to hear. God, help us to contend with our lives, to contend with 
our actions to contend with our words for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for Paul and for the example that was set before us. Thank you for the nearly unbelievable transformation that took place in his life. That you could take a man who was a persecutor of Christians and turn him into a contender for the gospel. To show us that you can do this with anybody. Anybody. God, do not let us get drawn into, sucked into being spectators we just let this battle happen around us and deny the fact that we are contenders. Awaken us, the fighter that you've put there. Let us contend for the truth that there is one God that his son Jesus Christ came and died for our sins so that we could be restored to him and that there is an enemy And that this life is a battle, but there is an eternity that awaits, that is perfect. That will make this life make sense to all those who feel that this is it. That we only get one chance. Give us courage, God. Help us to love each other as we do this contending that you've called us to do. Praise you for the word of truth and we commit ourselves to it in Jesus' name. Amen.